do a test thing here? Or? Uh, no, I think we should be good. Okay, uh, this is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Chuck Meehan, and it's March 2nd, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview at the Mariposa Food Co-op here in West Philadelphia, and this is part of the Lao Fast Philly series. Hi, Chuck. Hey, how you doing, Joseph? Uh, so I guess we'll start at Young Chuck. Um, so you were born in what year? I was born in the year 1961. Okay. And then did you get, were you born in Philadelphia? I was born in Philadelphia up at the old woman's hospital at 42nd and Poplar Street, yeah, which okay. doesn't exist anymore. You so are I'm, first, I'm West Philadelphia born. That is fantastic because you're the first person that I've interviewed who actually was born in the city. Everybody <laughs> else came into it later on. Mm -hmm. uh, so what neighborhood did you grow up in? I grew up in uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania, a little kind of working class pocket of Wayne called uh, Little Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, what, went what, to Radnor High School, graduated in 1979. Okay. What was it called uh, Little Chicago for? What is, is there any significance to the, the, the name of the neighborhood? Uh, it was just a little working class area. I think most of the houses uh, just maybe must have looked like Chicago or something. I don't know. <laughs> it just was called Little Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. So growing up or as a teenager, in a prior to the birth of punk in 76, 77, what, what were you interested in, music or otherwise? What was your Well, your I came up um, basically listening to the basic hard rock that every other kid did in the 70s. Um, uh, I was always kind of prone towards super high energy stuff, though. Even when I was like a, eight years old, I'd listen to the AM radio. They had that one song, the, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, Fire. Fire, yeah, And yeah. it would be like, I am the god of hell, fire! And then I'd be like, woo, woo, woo. Yeah, and you see or, the video where he has his head on fire. Yeah, uh, or something like Ike and Tina Turner would come on TV, and mm -hmm. they do that song, Proud Mary, and then they go into the fast part, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, Mitch Ryder, Mitch Twice. So I always had that kind of prone towards something that was just, for whatever reason, just super high adrenaline stuff, and... Uh, so, you know, I grew up, uh, yeah, started listening to rock music, the Stones, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, then in around, sometime, I guess it was maybe late spring or summer of 1977, the rock station WIOQ, they were kind of testing out this, uh, you know, quote-unquote punk new wave music that was starting to emerge in, you know, New York and England. And the DJ came on and uh, just gave this little thing about, well, you know, these new bands, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if, you know, just call us up and tell us what you think, you know. And the first thing they played was New Rose by The Damned. Mm -hmm. And So that was your first punk song? That was it, yes. Such a good that band. was <laughs> it. Really good that song yeah, that was it. And, you know, I had no idea. I'd never had heard of, you know, punk or new wave and anything like that. And then once the song came on, you know, just... You know, the drum intro, yeah. it was just like if you stuck an electrical cord in a small on my back. I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is great. And then the next song they played was um, Blank Generation by Richard Howe. Mm -hmm. And then they played a Dead Boy song, and I think they played a Patti Smith song, like Ask the Angels. I was like, hey man, this stuff is good. So I was lucky enough that the record store that I went to was... Uh, Plastic Fantastic in Bryn Mawr. Mm -hmm. And they were people who were behind us music from the start. So when I went in there and I saw that, you know, they had the Damned album as an import, uh, I bought it and just 
played it all the time. I mean, I even like taped it so that I could play it all through without having to get up and <laughs> flip over the record. I just like loved that record. It was just to me, you know, it was super high energy. It was fresh sounding. It was just, uh, you know, loved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was just pivotal, mm-hmm. pivotal. Really, just. Uh, Almost like literally changed the way I listened to music because after a while, once I started getting into them and the Ramones and these other bands, you know, I didn't like throw away my hard rock records, but then I would like, I'd take the LPs and play them at 45 and it sounded better. You know? <laughs> right. It's just like the Dan was, was it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, after that, I just started taking an interest in it and just, uh, okay, you know, I didn't like the idea of a punk. It didn't sound, you know, but it didn't matter to me. I mean, then. Yeah, there wasn't even a lot of records out at the time. There was, uh, you know, picked up on the Jam, the Clash, the Ramones. Now, are you still in in high school at this point, or is this post high school that you, that you discovered the band? So you, you know, a high school student when you first found. Yeah, them? I guess I would have been about fifteen years old at that time, mm-hmm. fifteen, sixteen, or just turning sixteen, and um, it was just. Uh, you know, Plastic Fantastic had access to all these records. I, I had an after-school job, so I had a little bit of money. I could afford to pay the extra two, three bucks for an import mm-hmm. LP. And uh, just anything new came out, I'd just buy it. You know, like the Eater 7-inch, uh, Outside View. Um, just anything that came in, uh, you know, that was that. And just started following fanzines that wrote about it. And then sometime there was a... TV show was called an NBC TV show called Weekend, and what it was was like once a month, like instead of having Saturday Night Live, I guess they gave the Saturday Night Live people off or whatever. They'd have this weekend kind of a TV magazine, and they had the first kind of TV coverage of what was going on in London. Mm-hmm. So they had about a five-minute report, and most of it had was the narration was over to Dan playing the background and you showed the people pogoing and going nuts like tearing out the ceilings it was just like whoa the damn yeah yeah I'm just like you know and then the narrator was sort of uh and uh it was something like you know in the 1960s the youth wanted to save society these people want to destroy the society I mean you know in the 70s you know people would laugh at all these 50s PSA kind of scares, mm-hmm. but now, you know, that was the same thing, you know, it was, yeah. it was just hilarious, and then, you know, they interviewed the Damned, and the Damned was obviously making fun of them, and so just watching the live footage was just, you know, they were just going crazy on stage, and the audience was like, wow, so uh, that just got me more into it, but um, I seem to be alone with that, nobody really, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, did you have friends, or did any of you? No, have- no, yeah. everyone hated it. Right. They considered it a joke. Uh, they couldn't play. Uh, I think part of it was just calling it punk. It just, I don't know, you know, what else you came up for it, but right there it makes a, a bad impression. And I think a lot of the initial media reports you got about this was all pretty much on the you know, the safety pin through the cheek and yeah, the yeah. spitting and all the... Uh, you know, the shock horror thing that was going on in Britain and what have you. Or, so, I think the impression a lot of people had of it was just that it was just some kind of schlock. 
mm-hmm. that wasn't to be taken seriously. Right. Now, did any of that part of it appeal to you, that the kind of, you know, the pin cheek mohawk, you know, all that? You know, the, the more I started, you know, reading interviews with the bands and understanding what they were doing, then, yeah. I mean, at first it was just purely like, man, this music's great. You know, I like this music. It just, to me, sounded fresh. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that was at the time where I think most of the American hard rock bands that came in prominent uh, in the 70s that were this, and they all started to hit a wall. I mean, like I said, I didn't throw out all my Aerosmith records when, you know, I got to start getting into punk. But then just, you could tell a year later, just these bands had hit a wall where, and then the industry as a whole was just getting really homogenized and new stuff that was coming out was your foreigners and your REO Speedwagons, uh, you know, well-produced, faceless, mm-hmm. no personality, nothing to say. And um, so, uh, but most of the people were just pretty happy with the bands that they had already, you know. Um, I mean, even though like the Rolling Stones were kind of, to me, just phoning it in at the time. Yeah, yeah. And most of these bands, to me, I thought had their best days three, four years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people were quite, quite happy with it and just considered, like, the punk bands, well, they can't play or just schlocky. And it was just something that was kind of dismissed mm-hmm. for the most part. Right, right. And uh, funny thing was, like, you know, with the Ramones... People would kind of think you were like mentally retarded if you liked them. They, they thought, well, you must be like a pinhead or something. <laughs> you know? Even in a nice way, like, oh, you know, you know how you be nice to the retard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, just uh, was pretty much at odds with uh, my peer group. Or uh, just they didn't like it, and I did, and I wasn't gonna go with peer pressure or whatever. It's just sort of like, well, I like it, you don't. Yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah. So when did you start to see some of this in Philadelphia? Like, was there a point where bands started to then play here that you you could have seen? No. The thing that would happen was from the time I got into it, it took a real long time, years, years. Uh, what happened was around October '77, the uh, Hot Club opened, and. Yeah, they were kind of lenient. They had some workarounds for underage people to come in, but you basically had to be about like eighteen with a fake ID. Yeah, I heard uh, that. You I just heard that they had some kind of dodgy relationships with the police, so maybe there were some payoffs, and thus they were kind of allowed to do things that you know. I've, yeah, I've heard that. Maybe um, some of the other interviews. Yeah, I'd heard about that. Well, they had this workaround thing, I think, where if you had ID saying you were eighteen, you signed like. A little clipboard, and then you were an employee mm-hmm. or something. It was kind of, uh, and I'd heard stuff about yeah, payoffs or whatever. And I think at the time, you know, I mean, if you look consider the landscape of Philadelphia around then, Twenty uh, First and South was just a remote outpost. It was just on the edge. It just wasn't part of Center City. It was yeah. just so. Uh, but even at that. If you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, you've got to deal with a curfew. You know, can't sit there. You know, you can't really go to a club to 2 o'clock in the morning and no trains home until 6. It just didn't work. So it was, yeah, pretty inaccessible. Uh, Every now and again, one of the bigger bands uh, would play. 
Uh, the first show I did get to see was when the Patti Smith Group had played a WIOQ free concert down at Penn's Landing. No, no. Uh, so they this played. Outdoor. Yeah, this was at uh, Labor Day weekend, 1977. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the headline then was uh, oh God, what did it called? UK. There was some like prog rock super group. Uh -huh. or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Patti Smith had played, and um, it really that was my first live experience with this music. And what really struck me about it was how Patti was just very direct to the crowd. Uh, most of the time, like a rock singer was, um, I don't mean as a put down, but more of like in a go-go boy. You know, they kind of preen on stage yeah. and sing, and you just sort of, you know, hey, everybody watch me. Yeah. Patti Smith was like up at the edge of the stage. I mean, she'd be dancing around, going crazy all over the stage. But when she was singing her vocals, she was right like at the edge of the stage, like making eye contact with the people in the audience, like definitely trying to really directly communicate what was, you know, in her soul to the people there. And that was very, very different. It wasn't just because she, you know, not just that it was a woman doing that, but just a singer, period. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that, you know, she was a woman doing that, just doing anything other than, like, folk music or, yeah, you yeah. know, Joni Mitchell, mm -hmm. that was significant. But, um, so that, yeah, really struck me as really, uh, you know, it was different. You didn't see anyone doing that. Did and you then, get a feeling for? I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. But did you get a feeling for how the audience reacted to her? I mean, were they like her people who came out to see her? Or was it just yeah? Like there was a certain. There was a certain identifiable, excuse me, identifiable crowd that was there, mm -hmm. and then for the most part, you know, it was kind of earlier on. I think most of the people were coming down later, so there was a bit of a crowd there. And I think the coolest thing about Patty was that after the set, she came out and just like hung out and held court, yeah, yeah. you know, which is something different. You've never seen a rock no, singer do that like before. Whistle off into outer cocaine land. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, you could just see, you know, it wasn't a lot, but you know, maybe fifty people at the most, fifty hundred people. You could, that were definitely you knew were there because. A Patty Smith. Yeah, and do you see these people and think, oh, you know, these are my people? Because you know, if if, the, if those around you weren't really into it, and now finally you kind of see some folks. It was well. The funny thing was just sort of. It was everyone was sort of part of a huger crowd there, so it was kind of scattered. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like well, it was just Patty Smith, the fans, and me. It was just sort of. Yeah. So it wasn't really. Um, now, I wouldn't really think we connected with everyone else or whatever, just due to the situation. I mean, it's just a huge pen landing, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, yeah, you could yeah. tell the people that were there, but it wasn't like everyone was like, yeah, like standing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. so then following, so as you got a little bit older, I guess, and somehow this punk thing kind of stuck around and mm -hmm. you know, your interest continued with it. Were you surprised that this thing had legs that, you know, that continued to have? Well, there was a period that, when the Sex Pistols were going to come over, okay, everyone was sort of kind of wondering what was bad. If America was going to take to the Sex Pistols, then yes, this punk was going to get big. If they didn't, what was going to be up? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, the Pistols, you know, when they went and broke up, uh, a lot of people thought, well, it, all right, punk is dead now. But at that point, the cat was out of the bag. The Clash, you still had the Clash, mm -hmm. you had the X-Ray Specs. 
Uh, you know, it wasn't like every band was going to break up just because the Sex Pistols didn't get big in America. They had already got big in England. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ramones were still trying to do it in America. So uh, it just sort of slowly kind of picked up people who may have just tripped across it, like myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and but there was still kind of a situation where you didn't, as a teenager, didn't get to see live shows because it was still such a small crowd that you had the hot club, you know, maybe 100, 150 people to go there and economically, well, you had to have it in a bar. You couldn't, you just couldn't really rent out a place without the alcohol money coming in and right, yeah. what have you. So, and so there was very few shows to go to. Uh, there was a show, I think there was an Iggy Pop Ramon show at the Tower, which was held uh, in October of 1977. And it was a Wednesday night and I couldn't get to it. I was just like, yeah. ready to. Uh, then the following spring, there was a Ramon's Jam Runaway show at the, the Tower Theater. Uh, I think. Blondie, who actually I wasn't really that much into them, but I guess they were considered new wave. Mm -hmm. uh, they played at the Walnut Street Theater. So no, it was just, um, you know, we had a lot of access to the music because we did have WXPN had a really good radio show. Uh, and WKDU had a show and we had really good record stores, you know, Plastic Fantastic, which sold all the fanzines, uh, the Third Street Jazz and Rock mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. So you had plenty of of access to this music except for going out and seeing it if you were happen to be 16 17 and in the suburbs right right so as you move as you get a little older you know now moving into an age where you can go to see stuff when do you start to pick up steam with the concerts that you start to go to and start actually seeing well i think what happened was around uh by about like 79 or so some of these new wave bands started to make some commercial inroads and by that time, the local concert monopoly, Electric Factory, started to take notice. Mm -hmm. And they started promoting shows at a discotheque called Emerald City on Route 70 in Cherry Hill. Um, I think it was about, you were, you know, drinking laws were different. You could still drink. It was 18 at the time in New Jersey. So, and the shows were held at, instead of like, you know, 11 o'clock at night, they were concert time shows where they'd be over. And they were accessible if you were 18 and could find a ride. But everything else about that place sucked. It was a really garish looking disco. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd go there, uh, you know, they had these goon security guys sneering at you. Uh, rude staff, the, the beer's overpriced, uh, the physical layout of this place with the disco lights. And, it was just yuck. I mean, yeah. you just clearly kinda, this is just like a marketing thing for them. You know, they can make some bucks on a. Well, what night. it was was that, you know, they didn't make really a lot of money on those shows, but it kept them, you know, in with the agencies. And if one or two of these bands did go up to that next level, they would have that relationship. So it was just sort of, mm -hmm. yeah. and also probably just to. I would say probably to make sure no other promoter was going to take this music and get the establish the same kind of relationship with these bands that would grow with them if they got bigger. Mm -hmm. So it was just a 
more of a control thing than a immediate profitable thing. And that aspect of it I didn't like. And it just was like, yeah, you know, I mean, as bad you want to see if the buzzcocks are coming, well, you want to see the buzzcocks, but you sort of creep in there, see it, get out, and yeah. left, still even left kind of a bad taste in your mouth. And even I think the band's playing there sort of, you can kind of see them on stage, like I remember the Buzzcocks just played this real flat set that was just like, you know, and I think, man, they got to be better than that. And like years later on YouTube, I've heard tapes from other cities that we were killing it, you know. Yeah, thought, probably in a club is maybe. Yeah, it just probably didn't like that atmosphere also. But, um, so I said, that was, you know, the one, two good things about it was at least, you know, a band would play in the Philadelphia area, but it was just, you know, a bad setup. So around the same time, um, you know, the hot club was still going, and then the hot club eventually was kind of forced out of business once gentrification started coming down to that part of, uh, you know, that corner of Center City. Yeah. Now, when did they when did they shut down? They shut down around, uh, I believe it would have been about sometime in the spring of 1980. Okay. Uh, they had. They had townhouses were developed about a block away, and then these people started complaining about the noise and uh, the people, you know, peeing in the alley or whatever. Or, you know, they started, now, were they mostly doing uh, punk new wave shows there, or did they also just have like everything, you know, rock shows? It was pretty. No, it was pretty much punk, new wave, experimental, mm-hmm. almost uh, exclusively. I guess there was a lot of new wave bands where. Some of these kind of tame pop kind of bands, but no, they weren't doing like hard rock or corporate rock or anything like that. So and you were able to go to some of those shows, you know? When yeah, you around 79, uh, once, you know, I made friends in the city where I could crash and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once I could kind of do the whole, you know, sign up and work there thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was able to see shows, saw a lot of really good shows there, Dead Boys, Madness. Uh, had a great atmosphere at the place. Um, always fun to go there. Mm-hmm. It was a good place, and you'd always tell, you know, David Carroll, the owner, and Bobby Starter, but it was always about the music with them. Always, their main motivation was, you know, creating fun for people, facilitating for musicians. They were all about the music. the The money was secondary to them. I mean, you know, you want to make enough to live on and pay your bills, but it was. They were definitely not of uh, you know a mercenary bent and you could kind of tell that so um, once it was kind of closed down once the, the local neighbors went to the politicians and that was that uh, you know Emerald City was going by this time and then uh, David and Bobby started doing shows at the Starlight Ballroom at Kensington and Lehigh Avenue um, a lot of people were very scared to go up there, and for good reasons, yeah, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. It was a very rough area up there. And uh, they started doing shows about, uh, you know, about a show a month. I think most of the time, at this point, a lot of the talent was being taken up by Electric Factory. I mean, I think people like Bobby and Dave were the kind of people I think that Electric Factory didn't want, you know, stealing their ball with this mm-hmm. stuff. So they would have about shows about once a month with, uh, you know, they had The Stranglers, they had X play there, uh, Susie and the Banshees, uh, Lydia Lunch's Eight-Eyed Spy, 
and I loved it. It was just, uh, uh, you know, it was at first like, uh oh, Kensington, but it was just enough of a no man's land where you could kind of creep in and out of there, mm -hmm. and it, uh, you know, without trouble, and you just had to be friendly to the locals. They had a policy there of like, well, they didn't want to shut the locals out because, uh, you know, to, you know, to, to keep good with them. Yeah. So those of us knew how to carry ourselves up there. You know, you went up there, if uh, Ken and Gosh started to give you sweat, just say, hey man, hey, give him a beer, you know. Right, right. If someone passed him a joint. So it got to the point where it was all good, you mm -hmm. know. And So you uh, never had any particular problems in that area? No, no. I mean, some people, some people did. Some, you know, there was some of the Kenny people, yeah, you fucking punk faggot. But you got that everywhere, it wasn't yeah. specific. Yeah. And with Kenson, I don't even think it was any outsider would have gotten that. It mm -hmm. just it wasn't just all right, maybe if you look like a weirdo that might have, you know, exaggerated it a bit, but Kenson was kind of an area that's just always, even in the best of times, very hostile to all outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Or just if you were an outsider they let you know it, you know, mm -hmm. this is our neighborhood. You know, they weren't like the welcoming kind of people. Right. And uh so and most of the time it was, it was just more like people, you know, walking down the street and just tripping in on it. So it wasn't really like smack dab in the corner, you know. Yeah, yeah. I said it was enough in the no man's land where, you know. Yeah, if you do it with stealth. Right. In and out. Yeah. And then. Okay, go ahead. Good. Uh, so, yeah, so it was good. And I love it because it was just like, you know, it just added that element of danger, man. Here it was under the L, you know, and. You get off the subway, and it was just like a real <clears throat> dilapidated old building. It just—it was cool. It was yeah, punk yeah. rock to yeah, me, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, it beat the hell out of like you know, driving to a you know a disco parking lot on Route 70. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it was you know Bobby and Dave doing it, and you know the people at the door were friendly, and you know. Yeah, so you get a feeling that that now this is actually something of a community. You know, where yeah, really yeah, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, well, you know, a continuance of it. It was Bobby and Dave's thing. You know, they had the hot club, which, again, I was a little bit too young for. But, you know, that was the real the real deal right there. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, those guys and what they were doing. Yeah. And now, in, in your younger days, uh, you know, initially discovering punk in the first few years, you know, living with your parents, working class community, how, how did they react to your interest in this thing? I mean, did they, they think that it was some... No, you know what? I think, you know, the significant thing about punk was that it really was as much going against your parents like maybe prior youth movements did. This was more you were at odds with your peers. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents, they didn't, to them, it was like, there wasn't any, you know, Iggy Pop was the same thing as Robert Plant. It was just rock, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't know. So they're not seeing the news reports and saying like, "Oh, Chuck, what are you doing, hanging out with these weirdos?" I saw this thing on TV where they, you know, they do this. They cut themselves and then they, you know, break things or whatever. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think it was to them, you know, not any different from Alice Cooper. Or, you know, it wasn't anything new to them. Yeah, you know, no. mm -hmm. but yeah, it was the peer group that uh, just. You know that you were at odds with that uh, didn't listen to it and again this was very very small i mean you were i was about the only until the senior year of high school i was the only person listening to this music i mean that's out of a school of 1200 people mm -hmm. uh eventually in my senior year this uh 
kid moved here from England who was into it, and that was that. And it was cool because, like, I guess the kids at school figured, well, he's from England. That's what they do over there, or something. <laughs> right. And you know, the other schools around, you know, maybe one, two kids at the most. At uh, so everyone was very isolated. Mm. There just wasn't a place to meet up with your peer group who liked the same music as yourself. You'd like run into somebody in a record store and you know you see someone with a Ramon shirt or if you're on a train somewhere and you saw somebody with a class shirt you just went up to them and that was your buddy exchanged yeah. phone numbers mm -hmm. you know you were it wasn't like checking this guy out it was just you were right there yeah friends you know so when did you start to see uh, an actual scene begin to develop in Philly like was it Starlight Ballroom that that really kind of started to coalesce well, yeah no I think Starlight Ballroom you could, yeah, you started meeting people and making friends. and But even by that time, 1980, there was sort of divisions coming between more of a, you know, people who were more into the loud, fast, hardcore punk stuff. And then people who were more into the, you know, maybe pop stuff or more into the quote-unquote art mm -hmm. uh, tendencies of it. I mean, when the people who originally got into 19th punk in 77, you could kind of break it down to be there was a certain crowd that grew up who were part of that, like, uh, garage rock collector scene who were into all those 60s punk bands. Mm -hmm. And so the punk music appealed to them. There was some of the uh, hardcore Bowie, Anglophile crowd that got into it. Uh, especially, you know, with the crazy fashion that was coming out of England. Mm -hmm. And I came more from the disaffected hard rocker yeah. thing. So there was definitely splits. I mean, not like fight splits, but there was def de definitely tendencies and things were sort of branching out, mm -hmm. even within this small, you know. Yeah. So do scene. you get a feeling that there that there is this hardcore strain of punk, that there's like a almost like a little sea change, that this thing is becoming something more defined at this point? Yeah, it started really, I think a lot of it was the people who started following, you know, the, the West Coast bands, Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, uh, you know, around like 80, 81, you could kind of see, you know, the people who were into that, you know, X, and that was sort of they were younger, they weren't interested in Sid Vicious, you know, by that time, you know, he was gone. A lot of the original British punk bands had kind of passed or had sort of softened their sound. So, yeah, there was definitely uh, a lot of what was called hardcore was just people who were just getting into a lot of these bands that really sort of centered on the west coast of America mm -hmm. uh, and Canada, you know, DOA. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people started meeting up, and um, it was just, you know, whenever there was the few times where there was something that was just a hardcore punk show, you'd be meeting the same people and kind of making the connections, mm -hmm. and um, so, and then finally what, you know, over a real long, you know, period of time, yeah, there was sort of a certain set of people, recognizable set of people that mm -hmm. were hardcore punk as opposed to like new waivers or 
Yeah, yeah. Art rockers or what have you. New romantic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, when when these initial hardcore bands out of uh, California are coming around in the DOA, that Kennedy's overtly political bands. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is kind of more of an intense infusion of politics, leftist politics, into this music. You know, probably more so than what have preceded it. Um, well, it was always that with the Clash. I mean, there yeah, was, yeah, yeah, true. Um, you know, there was definitely even, you know, before the Kennedys came by, there was, you know, there was, you know, people who had, uh, you know, that would be their agenda or the way they would thought. Right. So did yeah. you did you have an interest in the in the political strains of this uh, punk music? Yeah, I did to the point. I think that I think a big eye opener was, you know, I think in the seventies, you know, it was a lot of this. I mean, seventy seven. There was that whole Sid Vicious thing that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. It's kind of nihilistic, self destructive. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there was the. You know the original New York scene, the heroin that went in there. So there was a certain point that that had kind of. I was not really into the nihilism, and you know even with the Sex Pistols, when I first started following was before, you know the album came out, and there was still all the clamor in England about God Save the Queen, how the the British government came down on them. Mm-hmm. So that was you know. An eye opener about oh, this is music that really authorities, you know, yeah. are not into, or just you know, and just with the punk, it was just more you know, it was politics or just even just social realism, uh, you know, as opposed to regular rock, which was just uh, you know, escapism. Yeah, uh, you know, even the ones that weren't overtly political, uh, still it was about social realism. Now, did you see a lot of drugs moving through Philadelphia's uh, early punk into oh, hardcore scene? <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, you go to um, you go to the hot club and Quaaludes, Coke. It was all. If you, it was there. If you wanted it, it was there. Yeah, it and was this wasn't a lot of so people. Much scene or uh... I just was not into it. Uh, I mean, I did a little bit of. I'm someone who like tried everything once as far as hard drugs other than heroin and just didn't like it. I mean, I did coke and it just made me pee. Or, you know, like, yeah. and, and to me, coke was a disco drug, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, methamphetamine and uh, I, I, nah, I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't a straight edge, but uh, the hard drug thing uh, was just something I wasn't into, but I didn't, you know, you do it, you do it, and that's yeah. that, you know, kind Did of you that. see friends kind of fall into the the real nasty kind of strain? Yeah, of uh, unfortunately, um, yeah, there was uh, close friends of mine who ended up casualties to methamphetamine. So you understand that uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, what have you, Philadelphia was the methamphetamine manufacturing capital of the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Like, New York was junk. Philadelphia it was crank. Uh, these were produced by you know one percent of motorcycle gangs. This was very strong uh, and probably pretty cheap. Yeah, it was very cheap, and it was also if you wanted to have a hustle with it, all you had to do was find somebody in New York. I know a lot of people who did this who they could go out and buy you know an ounce of uh, 
you know, an ounce of meth or a certain supply, take half of it, keep it for themselves, take the other half of it, cut it down, sell it to their connection in New York, and basically have a free... Uh, right. So they could just ride their drug addiction. Yeah. You know, uh, to a I mean, it wasn't like... I mean, it was all there, but, just, you know, I mean, it, it was... There was definitely a faction that did, uh, you know, of methamphetamine abusers. You know, there was a very close friend of mine who is uh, still institutionalized today from his experiences with that. Oh, from from then? I mean, from the yeah, early, yeah, wow. yeah. He basically uh, fried his brain on methamphetamine, and uh, I mean, this was strong stuff. This was the kind of stuff where, you know, this wasn't just like popping a, a greenie or whatever. This was. Stuff you go on a three-day bender with, you know, like stay up for three days and crash and uh, doesn't work, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was a little bit more associated, you know, like quaaludes were a big drug, you know, cocaine, whatever. Uh, but that, once it kind of got into the all-ages hardcore scene, that kind of went at the back. That wasn't, drugs were not at the forefront of that mm -hmm. at all. So, I mean, getting back to the, um, you know, the emergence of the all-ages hardcore scene was uh, there was finally, you know, a certain crowd that could recognizable. And, you know, there were shows at the Starlight. And uh, unfortunately, the Starlight came to a crashing halt one day when Black Flag played there. What's the story with this? Well, what happened was Black Flag had brought along State of Alert, which was from Washington, which was uh, Henry Gar Garfield. Was Garfield, yeah. 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 yeah right. Henry Rollins's band before he joined Black Flag. Uh, Black Flag had SOA play, open up their new their Philadelphia show, and they brought up all their friends from Washington. Uh, these were called the Georgetown Punks. Now, the Georgetown punks were the first punks on the East Coast that really got hard into this. Uh, they kind of took after the uh, Orange County, Southern California beach punks uh, with the, you know, the cropped hair, the shaved heads, the boots, the bandanas. Mm -hmm. It was a definite Flat split away from the, the punk, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, the Sid Vicious, Johnny Thunders look. Uh, this was a, a, you know... These were the first guys in the East Coast that really got into that extreme thing. And they had went up, traveled up to Black Flag shows up in New York and, you know, excuse me, Black Flag Dead Kennedy show up in New York and just thrashed on everyone, took over the hall, terrorized all the New York punks who were still into that, you know, heroin and Johnny Thunders thing. Yeah. <clears throat> And, and I, I imagine that they're dancing. I mean, they're doing, you know, they're they were the first ones to do the crazy, yeah, yeah. the super wild slam dancing yeah. and what have you. And uh, so I knew before that show was going to go on, there's going to be trouble. What's going to happen? These guys were going to come up. They were going to like, you know, represent, you know, and there was going to be, they were going to run into a hassle with the Kens and the local, and that was going to be that. Mm -hmm. So I was like. Excited that it was finally Black Flag was going to play, but I was dreading knowing that it was going to turn into 
a bad scene. Right. And do you think the promoters knew that there was the potential for trouble there? You know, did anyone kind of clue them in that, that these people were coming up and that there might oh, be? Oh, I, I was convinced it was going to happen yeah. uh, just because in Washington, I mean, I knew, you know, not too many people knew about these DC guys even at the time, mm -hmm. but I'd heard the stories about, you know, them going up to see Flag in New York and I kind of knew what these guys were about and their whole kind of connection with the, you know, the, the West Coast surf punks. And it, what happened in, with the Georgetown punks was that they just sort of really kind of formed sort of a gang kind of a thing. Uh, a lot of it was initially for self-protection because punks were really subjected to uh, punk bashers back then. Mm -hmm. So they kind of got that idea from the West Coast just to stick together, always go out together, and if one guy looked at you wrong or started with you, 30 people. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, it was pretty typical gang dynamics. You start to as, you know, self-defense, but then you kind of get that sense of power of being in a gang, mm -hmm. and that's when they start going on the road trips and doing that. Right, know. they'll bring terror to your town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just knew that, well, all right, you guys can come up there and take over a hall in New York, but nobody walks into Kensington, Philadelphia. No. You know, it's just that, you know, you can get a mob of a hundred of hundreds of armed people pouring out of houses with baseball bats <laughs> for a second. It don't matter if you get two, three dozen guys with you, Kensington's going to have more. And they're going to be tougher than you are, too. You know, these, uh... Yeah, Georgetown. Yeah, this that, is, yeah. you know... I mean, Kensington's reputation was well-earned. These are people that you do not ever mess with. Mm -hmm. So I took it upon myself to come down to the show really early. I was working... I was living in West Conshohocken and working, I was out of high school at the time, I was living in West Conshohocken and I had uh, worked in driving auto parts. So I kind of um, appropriated the station wagon that I used to drive during the day and drove it up to the, you know, Kensington in Lehigh. I parked it like sort of down the block right on Kensington Avenue because I figured, okay, if I have to escape here, you know, my car's not right out in front, right. and I'm not going to run to the subway and get caught on an open platform. At least mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. maybe jump in the car. So that was my escape route. Were you going with people, or were you going No, I was stuff? meeting up with people later. Uh -huh. uh, I, most of my friends were kind of living, people I knew that I was meeting up with had lived in the city, or maybe coming up from Center City or what have you. And um, I was going to meet up with them later, but I wanted that escape route, you know, for yeah. me and them. Uh, so I decided to come up early, and the first person I ran across, I wanted to warn the DC guys, like explain to them, look, you know, you haven't seen, you've never seen a neighborhood like this. These people are rough. Don't fuck with these people. You know, if they give you a little sweat, just be friendly with them. You know, they'll be cool with you. But if there's any trouble, you're outnumbered. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just basically say tread lightly with these guys. And, you know, when I came up to the first person I came up to said that, you know, I could, he just sort of stared ahead, nodded his head, and I was like, okay. You and tried. then I, I later recognized him as the Jeff Nelson from Minor Threat. Yeah, <laughs> you know? And um, so I came up to the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I came up to the next group of people who I recognized from D.C., 
uh, well, because I didn't recognize them. Right, yeah. They were pretty obvious. And I gave them the same rap, and they looked at each other and laughed at me. And I was thinking, okay, <laughs> this is not going to end up uh -huh. too well. So I went up to you know Dave Cow and I sort of explained to him about what these DC guys were like and just you know watch out there could be trouble you know I wanted to give him heads up and then uh, I just thought well we're not much I'm gonna do other than just stand back if it blows up get the hell out keep a bird's eye view on it and mm -hmm. just wait for it to happen and hope for the best. Yeah. So the show started, the DC guys were, they were actually very obnoxious. They wouldn't, you know, you come up to be friendly with them, they just, you know, Yeah, so they're snotty. kind of snotty and, yeah, aloof. And the thing was, I mean, these were not tough guys. I mean, you wouldn't call them wimpy, but they were upper middle class kids. Yeah, yeah, Georgetown again. Yeah, no, uh, they no, were no. not, you could, you knew they weren't scary tough guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't wimps or whatever. But they were just out of their element in Kensington. I think, you know, if you're white and you're in D.C., you come from a professional family. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They have no concept of a poor white neighborhood. They just, you know, you're poor. If in D.C., a working class person would be Latino or black. Black, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there was a culture clash waiting to happen. And it did. <laughs> so what happened? What? Well... Originally, they went after the contingent of Philadelphia punks who sort of dressed up in the, uh, you know, Sid Vicious, Johnny Thunders, leather jacket, black, uh, you know, hair dye, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they, yeah, they were able to, you know, intimidate and knock around them. But then during, uh, during Black Flag said, they got into a scrap with the uh, couple of kids from Kensington who happened by the show. So they were, were they at this the kids from Kensington were they at the show or were they kind of just outside or something? It was sort of like Kensington people would they'd be walking down the street see something there and just sort of hey. Yeah what's this? You know, Bobby and and Dave Carroll be like, Yeah, hey come on in, you wanna come in, come in, you know? Yeah. So they just sort of triple you know, just run across it by random. You mm -hmm. know, it wasn't like they were coming to see anything. And um at first, you know, you could see the, you know, the DC crowd and then, you know, the, the, the Philly black leather jacket kind of crowd. The Kensington people thought it was funny, like these funny people were like, you know, at odds with each other. Yeah. But then once, uh, you know, Black Flag came on, they got into a scrap with the Kensington people. And then I distinctly remember one Kensington guy walking out the door, you know, heading out the door. Well, you motherfuckers are dead. <laughs> And at that point, yeah. everybody from Philly said later, you know, they knew this guy was going to come back with reinforcements and yeah. that was going to be it. Me, I was trying to be brave. I was like, Black Flag was playing. They were just like, oh, man. You don't want to miss Black Flag. Right. You know, I didn't want to walk out of it, man. I wouldn't be punk rock, you know, like walking out of a Black Flag. And even my friends were like, come on, Chuck, just get the fuck out of here, man, you know. And I was like, nah. And I just took the chance, well... You know, we'll just stay back here, and when these guys come back, they'll be going for the dudes up front. Yeah. And we'll just sneak out. You know, we, there, was a, there was a back door there. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we'll just get out that back door. Just follow me, to, you know. Yeah. And uh, so what happened was one of the Kensington kids came back and uh, sort of was like a, I don't know, a decoy or bait. One came in and just like, 
hit a uh, DC kid. And then a whole mob of about, you know, about 25, 30 D DC kids chased the Kensington kid through the hall, out the front door, across the street, onto an adjacent side street that came off of Kensington Avenue. Mm -hmm. And then once, you know, he lured all these people into it, <laughs> boom, these guys, all these Kensington kids came out baseball bats, <laughs> tire irons, pipes. Mm -hmm. You know, one second these DC kids were like, chasing and ready to catch this kid they were going to beat to have the next minute they were surrounded and the Kenton people just wailed on him it was bloody uh, these kids ended up the DC kids uh, they ended up in the ER it was um, you know they don't like hit you a few times and okay I win you know these people go to hurt you yeah yeah and it wasn't like they weren't asking for it yeah, yeah. and um, so once they kind of disposed of the people on the side street that armed mob came down to the front of the hall to see who came, yeah. who was left. Uh -huh. uh, Dave and Bobby like locked the doors, and me and my few friends we were like the only people from Philadelphia there, other than maybe the band Autistic Behavior, who were the first band who played that night, and whose equipment was still there. You know, they didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, and we're just like looking out the window, watching the the, the DC people just you know creaming getting creamed mm -hmm. and then you see a cop pull up and the cop just sits there for a while and uh, you know he wasn't going to get out of the car until he had reinforcements and then once uh, you know the police reinforcement came like okay let's get out of here you know you know me and my friends just sort of skedaddled down right so they're glad you had the car with you yeah so you know on the one hand I felt kind of bad you know when I heard about how bad these guys got hurt but on the other hand, they were warned, and they also were the, they were the belligerents. It wasn't the Kensington people starting with them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the funny thing was myself and uh, you know Neil Perry, uh, Jackal from Wide Eye, who I later you know was in Wide Eye with. We drove down to a show at the 9:30 Club the next the following week, and we saw a government issue. They went up on stage, go, "This goes out to the Philadelphia police." You know, they were he was bitching because they didn't protect them and I'm thinking, oh man, you don't know, dude. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was kind of pissed because that show should have been Philadelphia Hardcore's coming out party. Mm -hmm. It was a thing where like when Black Flag went through a town, the scene kind of congealed or sort of formed around there. Mm -hmm. And the West Coast bands all started coming around the spring of 1981. Uh, they skipped Philadelphia the first time, uh, or the Dead Black Flag skipped Philadelphia in March. The Dead Kennedys played this club, an over 21 club, at, and it turned out to be a real fiasco. The, uh, there was like these Nazis showed up, and then these communists showed up, and there was, and, but there was no kids there. It was just, you know. So that first go around was when really like the hardcore thing kind of set, started taking a hold on the East Coast, but missed Philly. Mm -hmm. And the Black Flag was supposed to be the show. Right. And, but it got stepped on from that. So for a long period of time, you know, there was people together, there was people trying to do stuff, but you just could not find places to do shows. Uh, 
you know, in Philadelphia at that time, once you went below South Street, you were in South Philadelphia. You weren't in Bella Vista or, or the Italian market. You were in serious Italian South Philadelphia. Uh, you go above, you know, pop, you go above Gerard Avenue. You were either in the Latino barrio or you were in white working class hostile area. Mm -hmm. uh, you go another area, you were in hostile African American, you know. Right. You just, there was just a real dividing line. You just did not go past punk or not punk, you know. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you were punk. That just sort of added fuel to the fire. Mm -hmm. And then within this little safe zone of Center City, it was getting harder because of the gentrification. You couldn't really, uh, you know, you just, you couldn't do stuff because there was townhouses or condos. Mm -hmm. uh, there was people, so you, and then just the nature of the music itself, it was hard to rent places. You know, you couldn't go up to a hall owner and go, okay, hey, uh, yeah, we're going to have these bands playing, and um, as soon as this band goes on, like, it's going to look like a hockey rink or like a Civil War rampage or something. But don't worry, they won't destroy you. Yeah, place. but, yeah, you know, but they're just dancing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, a lot of places you just sort of rent out, you'd have one show, that would be it. You know, and you wouldn't have a show for a long time. And, uh, <coughs> I mean, like in 1981 and 1982, I saw more shows in Washington, D.C. and in New York than in Philadelphia. Because mm -hmm. you just, there wasn't places to play. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was occasionally there was a new wave club, the East Side Club, that would might book, you know, a punk band. Uh, DOA played there. I mean, out of default, you know, like on a Tuesday night because yeah. you had to fill in the schedule. Yeah, right. And that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so there was, got to the point where people were just getting sick of it. And a group called the Philadelphia Better Youth Organization had formed. Uh, and their goal was to try to, you know, put on sh these one-off shows and raise enough money for a full-time venue. Now they're inspired by the Youth Brigade better youth or uh... yeah yeah I mean I they took the name of that but yeah the basic ideas of that and you know the need you know they saw the need of they wanted something that was by the punks for the punks you know we did not want to see you know so-and-so playing at a new wave club on a you know for over 21s on a Tuesday you know yeah yeah like our place, our scene, and these are all ages shows. Yeah, you know, a place that would be our thing. Right. And did you know any of these folks? When yeah, they were I, these were people. At this point, there was enough. You started knowing people just from the few shows that happened. You recognized people. You didn't hang out every week, but you know there was a definite crowd at the time. There was a definite certain amount of people, but you couldn't call it a scene just because there wasn't really. Mm -hmm. Ending steady. I mean, you might go two, three months without a show. Right, right. Uh, now, were you seeing Philly bands starting to crop up at this point? You know, Philly hardcore punk bands? Yeah, I think really there was the sadistic exploits who kind of had really took a lot of their cue from uh, Crass, the, you know, the British anarchist band, mm -hmm. yeah, in a lot of ways. They were very, you know, overtly political. Political, yeah. Um, musically, they took along more like Crass. The English, you know, a lot of the second generation punk bands. Uh, the other significant band would have been Decontrol, who came out of um, 
they were also sort of teenage kids from media. You know, they were go back to about the 70s. Uh, they were called the Sop and Hops or something and then changed to Decontrol. And they also played in sort of a, a clash, rough British style of punk. Uh, artistic behavior was, they were very unique. They were, it was kind of an odd situation with them. Their home base <coughs> was Philadelphia. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, that's <clears throat> where they rehearsed in Philadelphia and the members came from like Central Jersey one guy from Dover Delaware yeah, uh, yeah it's really weird but they managed to keep the band together and they were the one band who kind of opened up for like Black Flag Dead Kennedys TSOL you know whenever there was Bad Brains mm -hmm. you know even if it was at a crappy club or whatever so they were sort of go-to local band yeah these yeah they were bills. sort of like our reps for you know a while and they were an intensely good band. They were, and very unique. They didn't even, they were kind of like, uh, sort of like the, the, the Public Image Limited, Susie Nabanshi, icy guitar sound, but sort of blasted out through like a Bad Brains propulsion. Did they record anything? I don't know that I've ever heard them before. Did they, did they make any records? No, they... Okay. On foot, they had recorded an album which is actually being uh, re released now uh, to, uh, you know, BJ. Uh, no. I, I, you know, I can't remember the name. The, the same gentleman who's uh, re-releasing the Flag of Democracy stuff. Oh, I know. I saw that. The, Bruce the, Halk. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they recorded this back in 1982 and... They didn't have the money to put it out themselves. A couple of labels like Alternative Tentacles was expressing interest. Uh, TSOL was kind of expressing interest in trying to help them out, but nothing became of that. And then it just sort of, sort of dissipated. And it, uh, really, really good stuff. Uh, again, it was even different from a lot of uh, the hardcore bands. They weren't amateurish. It was a very, uh, you know, it was a different sound. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was still like super bad brains intense. So, uh, anyhow, there was just sort of like this scattering of a scene. Uh, the Philadelphia BYO had put on that show at uh, Buff Hall in Camden. Yeah, this is the show I wanted to ask about because uh, when I would hear about the show, it always seemed really weird to me that anybody would ever do anything in Camden. I grew up kind of close to Camden in Camden County. Yeah. So Camden was always hell on earth. Yeah. So whoever thought, like, let's have punks, in Camden for a show, yeah. surely this will go well. Or just because there was nowhere else to do it? Nowhere else to do it. I mean, that's how hard it was. Yeah. It just, uh, you know, I didn't even, and then part of it is maybe a lot of people came was, well, if you did it in a similar neighborhood in Philadelphia, everyone would know, like, what, you're doing this at, like, you know, 12th and Allegheny in Philadelphia? Hell no, I ain't going, you know? <laughs> Camden, it was just sort of like, well, Camden was kind of like, yeah, you knew the part together. It was like, well, maybe it's a bad, you know, maybe it's not a bad part of Camden. <laughs> and it was a bad part. And um, So you went to the show, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And actually, that would have turned into a bloodbath, except for the fact that uh, it was next door to this African-American 1% on 1% of motorcycle club, uh, the Ghetto Riders. Mm -hmm. And the ghetto riders, they thought we were all cool. Yeah, so yeah. they were like, ah, oh, yeah, hey. So they put out the word in the neighborhood, okay, 
these people are cool, stay away, and protected us, yeah, which is great because otherwise, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a few people that got robbed going to the show, and then, you know, the, the ghetto, once the ghetto riders put out the word, and that was that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they made money from that. Uh, they was that put, the only show at, at Buff Hall? Yeah, oh, that was it, yeah. Uh, it just was a little bit too crazy to be doing yeah. something there on a regular basis. And I think they, BYO put on like uh, a basement show with Husker Du up in, uh, up in Palton Village. And they did a few shows and they got enough to put a lease down on a place. They found a space at 3rd and Market Street. But, and they got the lease down on it, built the stage. They did two shows and it was shut down. Uh, they kind of made a ill-advised choice because at that time, Old City was starting to gentrify, and uh, there was immediate neighbors there. There was no soundproofing, and uh, you know I figured some guy sitting there like right next door to this place, and they had the band Crucifix play, mm -hmm. and we were a pretty heavy-duty band, <laughs> so it probably sounded like uh, you know a jumbo jet taking off or <laughs> you know. Yeah. A jackhammer, yeah. But in any case, uh, they had shows on a Friday night and a Sunday afternoon, and by Monday morning, bye bye. That was it, yeah. So finally, just, you know, it was frustrating. It was really just like, man, are we ever, ever going to have this? I mean, this is years and years and years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm starting to get old. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, relatively old for that. And it's like, man, we're going to have to go to New York, you know. And, and you're still fine. working straight jobs, right? Like, you're always. You're always working through all of this stuff. You're, you're always you're always employed, you know, working. You're not, you haven't like gone off to college or anything. No, I just had lived and worked, you know, whatever. Uh, sometimes not worked. I mean, that was a very very economically bad time. That early '80s. I mean, that recession was just, uh, you know, even if you weren't weird looking, if you were unemployed. That, you know, mm -hmm. this was uh, Reagan era unemployment. It was like worse than what we're going through now. Right. So nobody had money. That's why this collective thing kind of came up to try to mm -hmm. do it. So finally, Howard Saunders comes to the rescue. Uh, Howard Saunders, he grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. He went out to San Francisco, kind of picked up on the punk scene out there, moved back to Philadelphia, and... Uh, he was the only person who had what you call like a real job. I mean like a good job. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was working at the post office. That's how it was like back then. Like if you worked at the 30th Street post office, it's like, man, you've got, you're hooked up. You know, like you got, that's like, whoa, you make more than $5 an hour. Like, yeah. <laughs> so... Howard set on to, he wanted to do shows, and he had the money to rent halls, and he found Love Hall. Uh, Love Hall was at the northeast corner of Broad and South Street. It actually was a short-lived venue called the Love Club, uh, and it was sort of like an artist bar that had an adjoining room where they would have bands play, and... Uh, you know, it was mainly more kind of like what Bacchanal was, the club Bacchanal was, uh, more of an arty kind of, mm -hmm. not even punk or new wave, just free jazz, whatever. Yeah. And once that bar was shut down, they still had that adjoining room, 
So Howard was able to rent that out on a per night basis and that was Love Hall. So finally, you had a place you could do something at. And you started doing shows about two, three shows a month. And finally things started to come together. Mm -hmm. That's when, you know, Wide Eye started to play, Bruin. We had a home. Uh, we had a scene, you know, like McRad started, Mac, uh, Flag of Democracy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were a little bit behind the curve because, you know, D.C. had it going, Washington, New York. But finally, Philly had, you know, we had steady shows, we had bands, uh, you know, the compilation LP came out. Mm -hmm. So I can't, you know, overstate at all how important what Howard Saunders did, those Love Hall shows did. Uh, people came from all over the region. It wasn't just Philly. It was... You know, the Lehigh Valley, Harrisburg, Delaware, Atlantic City. Right, so you're on the map now. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just, uh, you know, even people came down from New York. Just these shows were, you know, the, the club, you could hold about, you could squeeze about 500 people in there. And these shows were just legendary and still are, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so then they, there was a fire, which was like, oh, man right around July and I was like oh no not again are we ever so it was at Love Hall yeah at Love Hall well what it was was you know there was Love Hall then there was the closed down bar next to it and then there was like a room in flop house on top uh, right <laughs> and, uh, uh, there was I guess one of the uh, room and house tenants fell asleep drunk with a cigarette and so there was a lot of damage to the building um, but luckily, right on the southeast corner, there was a place called the Long March Jazz Academy. Uh, there was an old ballroom on the second floor of this building. And for years, there was like this, I believe there was just like this Maoist group called the Long March Collective kind of rented it. Uh -huh. Sort of like their headquarters. Um, Again, this is getting fuzzy. You're going back to like the early 70s or something. Yeah, yeah. Like they used to have a bookstore fourth and south street. Like, I mean, they, these were like serious, like, Maoists. <laughs> like, yeah. Odd, but you, you know, you had still people like that in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, left over from the 60s radicals or what have you. But anyhow, um, there was a group called the Long March Jazz. I think the Long March people moved out of there. And then these people kind of a jazz collective called uh, the Long March Jazz Academy moved in. I think it was just a place where people got together, had freeform jams or what have you. Uh, you know, kind of worked their things out. And then they wanted to make kind of an impromptu jazz club out of it. But the first time they had a show, somebody got stabbed to death outside, out front. Yeah, that would kind of fuck things up. Yeah, so that was that. So, it went unused until Howard found this place and he went to the owner and was able to rent it out again, you know, on a per night basis. And he did the shows there. Now, he called them Love Hall shows also just out of, even though, you know, some of these shows would have been billed as Long March, some were billed as Love, just out of name recognition. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he did the shows there and then... Once they had the regular Love Hall fixed up, you know, kind of alternated back and forth. Mm -hmm. 
And then finally the uh, the old glove hall just you know it wasn't available for rent again. You couldn't do you know had no heat in there, so you couldn't do anything in the winter, mm -hmm. and it just got too dilapidated. And then after a while, the people who were renting the uh, the long march out stopped renting it out. So around spring or so of 1984, after this nice like year-long run, we were back, you know, no place again. Now, are you in Wide-Eye at this point? I was in Wide-Eye until, I was in Wide-Eye from New Year's Eve 1983 to New Year's Eve 1984. Okay, so, so what, what did you do in the band? I played bass. Okay, and oh. then, so what, why did you leave the band or what happened with that situation? Well, the root of all of it was, well, you know, the old quote-unquote personal differences. Uh, <laughs> I've heard of these things before. <laughs> right. Basically, the root of it was we were just shit, broke, poor, no money, no nothing. You know, our guitarist was 24 years old, and maybe at the point where, like, I'm not going to make any money doing this stuff. He wanted to kind of make it more towards a metal kind of thing and that's something that I didn't want to do and that I wasn't capable of doing and just there was a lot of tensions where like for instance I was unemployed I couldn't even afford to give my ten dollars of rent you know for that practice basically. right yeah, and that yeah. pissed them off and I'd have some bullshit excuse for not having it yeah. and that was the root of it all. It was just our equipment was garbage. We didn't have a van. Uh, and, but, you know, we were getting a good name. And to me, it was just like, well, let's just hang on for a while and it'll come through. And Michael was a little bit more like, wasn't willing to go up to like Connecticut or play hall shows unless we got like a larger guarantee. And, yeah. and then it just got to a point where, you know, it's we couldn't work together uh, myself and Michael and uh, about I left the band and then about three weeks later our drummer Howard was uh, found out that his girlfriend was pregnant so that was kind of the end of the original thrash period wide-eyed mm -hmm. uh, so around you know again the show stopped again there was uh, the Community Education Center had a couple of shows there that were put on by uh, Lenny Bandock and the late Christian Weber. They sort of picked up a little bit of the slack, but after about three or four of the shows, the people at the C Center was a little bit too much for them. Uh, they just thought, you know, and they stopped doing shows. Mm -hmm. So we went the period, you know, we're back to square one. No shows, no place. Like that whole summer of 1984, we were back to having like shows at frat houses and in basements. Just no, but no real yeah. big shows. Yeah. Everyone was skipping Philly again. Uh, I took off for the summer. I had my heart set on touring America with Wide Eye. That was my big plans. And then when I got out of Wide Eye, I figured, all right, fuck it, I'm going to go tour anyhow. Mm -hmm. So I just took what money I had and went on a Greyhound bus and went around the country. And. No, so I, you know, I was even thinking of moving to, you know, San Francisco or L.A. But once I got out there and saw the punk scenes out there, I didn't like it. I actually kind of liked what was going on in Philly better. 
Mm-hmm. It was, was it, weird. What was it about those places that you didn't like as much as Philadelphia? What, what, didn't, what didn't you like about those places that would well, turn you off to them? In Philly, I mean, we had this, like, you know, I guess there was familiarity. There was my friends, and you got your personal relationships then. Mm-hmm. But the shows in Philly were, they were fun. They were good. There was no fights. You know, there was, you know, sometimes there was beef, personal differences. It's always going to happen, you mm-hmm. know, like... Hey, that guy stole hit my girlfriend, or you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. But for the most part, everyone put stuff aside, and once the bands came on, that was that. It was really focused on the music. It wasn't like a hangout scene. It wasn't a drug scene. And you know, it was good. I really liked. You know, that one period was really like to me the high water mark. I mean, everyone's got their little high water marks. Yeah, yeah. That you know, nineteen eighty three into 84 period was mine and when I traveled around you know I went to like Denver and had my first encounter with like serious Nazi skins and you know I saw these like goons like just take over and terrorize this whole TSOL show and it was just like what the fuck now you know, I'm talking to people, and it's like, yeah, those assholes show up every morning. They're fucking ruining the scene. And it's like, well, you know, can't you guys all get together? But, you know, they just people where I weren't unified enough to drive them out. Mm-hmm. And then I went to San Francisco, and the first thing, as soon as I got off the bus, I was, like, swarmed on by these street kids, punker kids, who were hanging out at the bus station, and I swear they must have been sitting there waiting for like punks to get off the bus to to vamp on. Well, yeah, hey, she's probably got money, you know. And these were kids that they were all from like Southern California who just ran away from home and were living on the streets from San Francisco, and all like strung out on meth, and you know they looked like a mess. And you know, hey, got a court, you know, they're begging me already, and they're you know being all friends, you know. And I knew right off, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of rubbed me wrong. And then I went to a show. Went to one club in San Francisco. It was, it was a it was a hardcore show, but at a club. It was in California. It was a little bit more lenient, mm-hmm. you know. And I saw Nazi skins there, and I'm thinking San Francisco, you know. And thing is, you wouldn't see that in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know. You heard rumors of something, you know. You just. And you think of San Francisco? This is nah, yeah. What well, could be more liberal? Of yeah, city and than these are people everything. like they were all friendly because I had Doc Martens, you know. And I thought wore Doc Martens just because like well, my friend from England could bring them over and they cost thirty bucks, you know. Yeah, then and, you know, and then they were like going on about niggers and fags, and I'm just like, oh, what the fuck, yeah. you know? Like, um, so I just had a bad impression yeah I mean I didn't hang around San Francisco long enough but just sort of that whole scene which was pretty I didn't like that then I went down to Los Angeles and I went to one of those huge shows and it was like DOA the exploited and there was 5,000 people at the Olympic Auditorium Jeez. and that it's like was like you're seeing like another state of mind but it's like you know thousands of people yeah well there's like circle it was five different pits it looked like the Olympic symbol <laughs> it was the Olympic Auditorium but they had five circle pits going that was like you know I'm look I'm sitting back looking at this thing and this could never have I mean 5,000 I mean it was literally like 5,000 people here yeah. and that was just mind-boggling because like the biggest thing you'd ever see like 
in New York or Philadelphia would be like a thousand people at a show. Mm-hmm. And it was also a lot of fights, a lot of violence. Uh, I, you know, and I just never understood like punks fighting punks. It was just like where I come from, you know, you, you didn't do that. You were friends. You know, even if you had differences, you were still a punk. You were still hard, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was unfathomable, like, punk gangs clashing. And I went into a bathroom, like, gang, you know, they had gangs at that time. And they would claim turf. They would claim... In the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> they had a special toilet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'd go in and... So I went into one bathroom. I didn't know it at the time. And immediately I got surrounded. And it was like, where are you from? I go... Philadelphia, and they go, oh, <laughs> they look at each other like, uh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, went and go, took a piss, and, but if I would have said like Fullerton or, you know, Huntington Beach, and I, mean, I might not be interviewed. Yeah, yeah, I would have been either, you know, you're not allowed in here, or boom, you know, depending, so it just, uh, so I just, uh, the whole scene, it was, you know, still it was punk, I liked that, but it, it kind of alienated me a bit, and it just was enough to be like, well, once I got back to Philly, he was, he was like, well, you know, I kind of like Philly. You know, I just didn't think, well, L.A., you know, God, I got to get back to L.A. Yeah. And so once we came back, there was still no shows. It sucked. And we were trying to find places and everyone, you know, anyone would try to, you know, it was still the same old, you know, all right, Pan would have a show, which was nice, but you couldn't really, you know build around that mm-hmm. uh, you know it was more of a, what I would call like a accessorial venue more of a secondary yeah, yeah. you know you didn't have that our place mm-hmm. then one day um, I was living up at 45th and Walnut Street uh, you know it was just sort of like a a punk apartment <laughs> like one step above a flop house a punk flop house and it was just an apartment building that was going to be renovated and the landlord said okay hey you guys can stay here for a hundred dollars a month. Yeah, uh, I was in there with like uh, Tim Dunn, uh, who was the next person I'm interviewing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then one day I found like a newspaper, University of Pennsylvania newspaper. Uh, little ad in the back said, "Place to rent for your party and event, or event." And I was like, "Okay." Now check this out. And called the guy up, and it was this guy Abe who had this place at 20 South 40th, and so he was like, uh, I was like, okay, cool, 40th and Market. So I went up there and met this guy, Abe. He was just this sort of real small, mousy, mild-mannered, Jewish-looking gentleman. You know, real nice, kind of, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you know, I told him, well, yeah, you know, we have, like, rock bands we want to play here. And, you know, yeah. he, he didn't want to say, hey, we want punk rock. Uh I was like, okay, well, we're renting out this back room for uh, $75. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, just, that was, you know, it, super cheap. Uh, you just got to clean out the back room and, uh, you know, go ahead. So myself uh, and Tim Dunn, we went and cleaned out this room. And we went and we did a show at 7 Seconds. I'd made friends with Seth. You know, when I was traveling around, I stayed in Reno, which was actually one of the coolest places I saw, you know. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, you know better scenes uh, and I'd made friends with uh, Seven Seconds so when I found out they were coming to Philadelphia and didn't have a place to play I was like okay let's do it here and 
we, Tim and I, pretty much, we figured, all right, yeah, we're going to do this one show. This guy's going to freak out. And yeah, that'll, that'll be, be that. Yeah. But um, it went really well. There was about, you know, a couple hundred people showed up. I don't know how they all squeezed in that room. And Abe was great. He sold tons of cheesesteaks uh, and sodas and made his $75 rent. And um, he was more happy with it, you know. So when we were, that when the show was over, uh, you know, we were kind of Tim and I, right? I guess we were just kind of like, well, hey, uh, you know, can you rent this out again? Do this again sometime? Like, oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, you don't care. So and, now Billy has a place. Yeah. yeah, it was like, wow. You know, he didn't say, like, no way, you know. Yeah. We're like, finally, we're all a place we do more than once. And he was all great with it, you know. I mean, these were, and, you know, these were like kids bringing 40s in and, you know, people, you know, back then people were like, you know, with the punk haircut and, you know, just automatically thought he'd freak out. I don't care, you know. He's making money and they were yeah. destroying the place. So yeah. I guess that's all that really matters. Yeah, so finally we were able to do that any week we wanted to like Tim would do some show you know sometimes Tim took the lead on it and would set up the bands I'd set up the bands you know Tim more like you know he gave Scram the first show he kind of discovered Scram you know I mean he gets credit for that um, and it was just a great place it was always fun Abe didn't care about anything he never went into the back room he just stand, stood behind the counter uh, it was risk-free putting on shows there I mean it was $75 to rent the PA you could use a band's rehearsal PA you know at the most you pay 25 50 bucks for a guy to run a little small rig now were so, you calling yourselves something like did you have a name for the you know the two of you doing shows or was it just Abe's stage? Abe stage? <laughs> we just called it Abe's yeah and uh, we just uh, it was great we were doing shows pretty much almost on a weekly basis there uh, it was, you couldn't lose money, it was just, even if 30, 40 people showed up and paid $5, then yeah, everyone got paid, bands got, you know, just great. It was a great place, you know, Electric Love Muffin got their start there, Dead Milkman played one of the earlier shows there. Um, a perfect place for just bands starting out, because you could play in a little room, the sound was great. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and if there was like only a couple dozen people there, you were still playing in front of a crowd. It wasn't like a scattered, dispersed. Right. And it was just always fun. It was just like a great vibe to this place. Um, now, I might have read a certain article that said that Abe had some interesting people that would come around. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Well, it turned out, you know, after a while, it became obvious that Abe was... I guess a, a local landlord, or well, if you want to. Would we say slumlord? slumlord? Okay, okay yeah. I think we could say that he's probably. He dead. had, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he had a rooming house on top of his place, and he owned a bunch of you know ramshackle houses around. And he always had these kind of halfway house-looking people hanging out at Abe's. Always these weird people. We called him Abe's Army. Uh -huh. So. It was obvious after a while that his whole thing was, the whole enterprise was him kind of, you know, he had his tenants, you know, he had his room and houses in the vicinity, he had upstairs, and he would get these people's disability checks and, you know, deduct the rent, he'd feed them there, 
They take steaks every day. <laughs> yeah. Take steak sandwich. After. Yeah, I guess they must like cheesesteak and, you know, he'd feed them there. I mean, he was home from 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he'd feed them. I guess he'd, uh, he uh, even had a cigarette machine, I think he had there. Or, no, well, whatever. He'd give them cigarettes. He'd sell them cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was that. So that was his whole, that's how he made his living. And the people we had there, they were, I said, you know, kind of halfway house people, but they were mostly pretty harmless. They weren't like addicts or whatever. Mm -hmm. They were obviously people who, you know, maybe had diminished mental capacities or some of them were parolees. Uh, some of them were Vietnam vet, you know, Vietnam era vets. So there was never really that much of a hassle. Uh, yeah, again, they weren't really hardcore, I mean, there were people who were maybe enough they could kind of live in a room and house. Yeah, they didn't need but to be But not people who but... could really take care of themselves on their own. Mm -hmm. And we could never figure out, well, is Abe a scumbag exploiting these people? Or is he sort of like a nice social worker type, kind of keeping these people out of institutions? I mean, to this day... You still don't know. I'd have to sit down and talk about this with Timmy, you know. I mean... <laughs> Uh, I, I still could never figure it out. So we always had these people hanging around, uh, but they were never any problem. I think like uh, once the show started, Abe would you know policy was to let Abe you know deal with him. Abe would kind of like you know if there was crowded, Abe would shoo him out the door. If it wasn't crowded, he let him hang out, and you know it sort of added to the <laughs> atmosphere, you know. Maybe it made the, the, made the punks feel a little less weird, you know. I mean, it was still, you know, it was still like, you know, 15-year-old kids who were alienated and isolated. And it was like, well, at least I ain't that guy. <laughs> you know? Here's what you're going to look like in the future. Could be worse, right, you know. Yeah. And, um, it's Philly. Uh, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, the shows there were fun. It was just good times. And there was one guy in particular who hung out there who... He was kind of part of what we called the army, but he sort of stood out a little bit different because he was like, he was kind of well-groomed and he wore like a buck fringe jacket and he always wore like purple, like silk shirts or like loud Hawaiian shirts. And he was sort of like styling in his own weird way and he was clean, he, like his clothes fit. Like usually an AIDS army guy, you know, wore Salvation Army, yeah. You know, close and uh, might not have combed their hair or whatever. You know, and this guy had the trim beard. And when you saw his eyes, he didn't have that kind of like glazed thousand yard stare kind of look. Mm -hmm. He looked, you know, he had pretty intense looking, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he always sat there drinking coffee and just staring straight ahead. You know, there was at the wall, mm -hmm. and just you know, and look around a little bit, and you, you know, you didn't want to go up and talk to him, but he never really didn't seem to, you know, wander around or socialize. You all just like sat there, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, I mean, I didn't concern myself too much with him, but then my first impression was that he might have been like some guy that has something to do with pen. Maybe he looks like you know, he looked like he was real smart. Mm -hmm. Like he might have been some like professor. 
Yeah, yeah. Like maybe he was like some kind of weirdo physics genius who was a professor at Penn or something. Yeah, yeah. And because it was right, you know, two blocks away from Penn University. So, you know, we didn't pay him much mind. And there was one time where uh, he went to come in a show once it started. And Jim McMonagle from FOD was working the door. And he went to come in and go, well, listen, I'm just going to get some coffee. And Jim's like, well, now the show started, you got to pay. Like, well, no, no, I just want some coffee. And Jim's like, nah, listen, you got to come on. And he sort of put up a, you know, he wasn't belligerent, but just kind of trying to get in there. But he was blocking up the door. And so Jim kind of like, come on, man, you got to go and sort of shoot him out of the way so the rest of the line could keep moving. So, and he went off. So after a while, I came home, you know, there was one day where I came home from work and Action News was on and they showed this same guy being perp walked by the police. Uh-huh. And then I'm listening to the narrative about it is Gary Heidnick and all this about like having women chained up in his house and, and eating them and, uh, you know, I'm listening, it's like, that's an HRB dude. <laughs> and then I went into a panic because, you know, they didn't describe who the women were. Right, right. I thought, are these girls from the shows or something? Like, you know, because that's, you know, I'm just going by that narrative. He's there. This yeah, well, yeah, he was locking up women's and, yeah. uh, you know, and then he even talked about him hanging out, you know, like 40th and Spruce Street or we hang at the McDonald's at 40th and Walnut. And I was like, oh my God, was this guy picking up girls at the shows and like, taking him back to his dungeon and eating them. Oh, man. <laughs> and then, you know, I hadn't heard of any news about any missing girls, and I'm, like, calling up, you know, like, and nobody, you know. So it turned out he really, you know, once you started reading the story, okay, he wasn't picking up the girls from the show or what have you. But, yeah, it was Gary Heidnick hung out at, uh, you know. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, for years I thought he never really talked to anybody, but it turned out that, he took a shine to Morphine's guitarist, uh, Elizabeth Mersh. I'll be uh, interviewing her in a few weeks. i got to ask about yeah. that. So he, they got along with each other pretty well? Well, no. It was kind of a thing where the Morphine's were playing one night. And Liz always had... Uh, she always had these really... I mean, she always dresses really colorfully. Yeah. I mean, even just, you know, to go to work or walk down the street. Okay. You know, very highly creative, you know, uh-huh. way of dressing. And then... When she played on the stage, she'd have some, you know, crazy looking or, you know, flamboyant get up, like a tiara that was backwards. And Gary just thought it was, she looked great, you know. And like, so Gary came up and I, I don't think he was trying to hit on her. Uh, you know, I mean, I'd have to discuss it with Liz. I think it was just more of a thing like, wow, you look great. Because Gary used to dress up sort of... <laughs> yeah. He dressed up kind of weird himself. So Maybe I think, they were soulmates. Uh, yeah, I think he was just sort of like, you know, dug her style rather than like a real sexual interest. I think Gary had another outlet for his... Uh, so he didn't want to eat her. Yeah, right. They liked his style. Or, you know, right, exactly. You know. So, um, yeah, that. And there was... He wasn't the only infamous person. Um, there was one night when the band Circle of Shit and the band SNFU from Ca- from Canada played, this one woman showed up for the first time who had like five o'clock stubble sh- on her head, you know, shaved head, just <laughs> five o'clock shadow head, yeah, yeah. dressed head to toe in army camo, 
and she was really stocky and burly and butch looking and it's like and you know no one had ever seen her at a show before and that was my job you know as the promoter uh, you see some crazy person you ever seen before all right keep an eye on this you know and she showed up for the show and I think she scared the hell out of people because nobody came up to her mm -hmm. and she just sort of like walked around she was real agitated looking and looked uh, I don't know you know she looked like on the verge of you know whatever <laughs> having a breakdown yeah, yeah. Of, of doing something stupid and it turned out it ended up being Sylvia Segrist a woman who took a, an assault rifle and shot up the Springfield Mall wow geez. yeah yeah so we I kind of wondered like well how did she end up at the punk show and uh, my theory was like the band circle shit used to like put up these real lurid flyers you know like Halloween kill yourself hate edge I think she might have like ran across that and thought hey I like that and mm -hmm. I'm gonna go see this band circle of shit and, <laughs> hopefully it's well, she only came friends. to the one show that's all it took yeah and then I found out years later that she was actually roommates in a group house out in Swarthmore where she grew up with uh the late Jack Corey, who sang for the late uh, the Scab Cadillac, who was a late 80s band. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, they were the infamous people, or the super infamous people who yeah, went yeah. to Abe's. But Abe's was just, it was great. I think it, you know, you didn't even realize it at the time. You realize how significant it was years after the fact. It just sort of stabilized, even though it was a very small venue, it kind of stabilized and kept things going every week. Yeah. Uh, the the CE Center started having shows again, I think more out of more out of financial necessity. I don't think they were too juiced about it, but you know, they needed that two hundred and fifty bucks a night rental. Mm -hmm. uh, there then there was a new wave club called the Kennel Club that started doing Sunday allowed me to do Sunday afternoon shows. And that worked out real nice because it was instead of trying to mix like a dance rock scene with a, a punk rock scene, it was just like we had the space. Right, so it was all you. And um, that was a nice space for the touring bands to come through. So for a pretty long while, we had it all pretty wired up. And then there was other promoters like, you know, Lenny and Kristen would find one-off places. Like they put on a Dead Kennedy show at Rutgers and Camden. Mm -hmm. uh, someone would find a one-off show and put on like Ruin. Ruin was the band that everyone who promoted a show first for their first time, they'd always get Ruin because you knew there was going to be... The people would come out to see yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even put on Ruin that much just because they played around so much. Mm -hmm. Other reports like, okay, yeah, you go ahead and put on Ruin and I'll put on the, you know, screens, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so there was always a lot happening really from about you know, October 84 on through up to the late 80s. Uh, well, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. We're actually running out of time, which uh, is unfortunate because I think that the interview is really great. Um, so we only have about five minutes left, which is, okay. you know. Uh, so mm, it's kind of hard to sum up many years in, in just a few minutes. But yeah. uh, So if you could, I guess it's kind of give me a, I hate to do this, a brief sketch of what happened then. And then my final question would be, you've retained an interest and an involvement in this thing in, in all of these years. So what is it that's kind of kept you involved in this? So okay, if you can give me kind of the, yeah, like the rest of it. What kept me involved was, 
Number one, I mean, I just tripped across. That's how I got into it. Just tripped across to find a place. Tim and I did the shows, and then from there on, it was just a thing of, you know, someone's coming to town. Let's do it, you know? I mean, we didn't have a game plan. We weren't professionals. We weren't a production company. You know, it was myself, and, you know, Tim did stuff on his own. Uh, you know, he did shows on his own, but... It was myself and my then girlfriend Tamara Claire, who was of you know valuable assistance in doing these shows, uh, you know at Abe's C Center called Pizzazz, various venues. Yeah. So did you uh, find Pizzazz? Was it? Uh, it was. It was referred to me. Okay. It was a place where someone was doing metal shows and they weren't successful. And uh, it was also a rough, pretty rough neighborhood. I mean, that's where I started going to shows when I was young. Yeah. So for me, that come into that place. Yeah, well, they, um, Pizzazz was just sort of a, it, it was another one of the areas that was kind of rough, but it wasn't as bad as Kensington, and still it was at a subway stop in No Man's Land. Yeah. Um, it was a little bit more of a later period. There was just a lot of stuff. For the most part, it was fun, but at that point, especially a little later on, I was getting a little bit distancing from it because to me a lot of the bands were starting to get second generation clony. I mean, but I didn't want to put myself in as like, well, you kids aren't, whatever. And then some of the politics, I kind of started a little right wing politics started creeping into that scene. Mm -hmm. Not like the heart. We didn't have the real Nazi thing. I think that kind of happened maybe after I stopped getting involved doing shows. We had this kind of right wing light. Reagan youth kind of USA, USA mm -hmm. jockey thing. A lot of it wasn't bad intended, but it was sort of st stupid, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been, you know, I, there was a point where you wanted to put on shows where everyone would feel comfortable if you were a punk, if you were a gay kid, if you were a woman, you know, if you were black. And I think a little bit later on, even though, you know, a lot of the shows were pretty good. The scene overall got a little bit more just too white male, narrow casted. Mm -hmm. And then after Corpus has changed ownerships, I had uh, new owners came in with these terms I couldn't work with. That's pretty much when I got out of the all ages hardcore thing. I figured, well, I'm about, you know, I'm 26, 27 now. These kids are all 16. Younger guys got to do it. It's got to be your thing, not, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but a lot of my motivation was just, you know, these bands were coming here, had to play. There was bands here that need to play. I played in a band. I knew what it, mm. you know, somebody had to do it. We had to do it. Right, yeah. We weren't going to sit around waiting for Electric Factory concerts. We weren't working for some rich investor. You know, I didn't worry about bitching about the Dodds, whatever. It was like, well, you know, Dodds, put on your rock and roll bands. Fine. We do ours, you know. Right, right. It wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, it was all about creating your own culture, participating in it, having people participate, you know, it's your peer group, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't a commerce thing, and uh, it was just about punk rock, you know. And do you think you've kept this kind of burning inside of you that there's still some, you know, you retain, obviously you retain a connection to punk and Philly, I mean, you're kind of like an icon. In yeah, a way. well, it's... You know, I mean, I, I followed it. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, you get older, you're not going to be going to two, three shows a week. But, yeah, even, you know, afterwards, I saw how maybe after the late, you know, the 80s thing kind of fizzled. I saw how, you know, people like the Cabbage Collective, uh, 
the Westchester kids, you know, 2.5 children, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the style 13. I saw how it regenerated again. There was like uh, another generation kind of came and pretty much did the same thing we did. Just kind of came out, found risky sh shows in risky neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So I always respected that. I never, ever liked to pull that nonsense of like, oh, you know, well, when we did it, blah, blah, blah. So like to me... You know, what the 90s kids did was every bit as valid as what we did in the 80s and what Bobby and Bobby Startup and Dave Carroll was doing in the 70s. And that goes up to today. I mean, any of these, uh, you, know, uh, you know, these kids out in Ardmore now, Munchausen, uh, you know, the whole Ardmore Soul mm -hmm. crowd or bands here like Trophy Wife or the people doing the shows right up the street here or people doing it in the basement. Uh, it's every bit as valid as what we did it, and just because we came from that area, just because we were first with it, doesn't mean what well, we're better than you or you're just a bad imitator. I mean, it, it is as valid. I mean, there was the good, the bad, and the ugly in every scene. Mm -hmm. And it was that way, you know. You had some bad news people in the late 70s. There was some bad news people in the 80s and, and now. So, uh, you know, that's one thing I stress for, you know, for the younger kids. Don't think you're just sort of, you know, you know, not doing anything significant when you go, you know, go rent out that house, do that house show, support that house show, uh, go out and buy the tape of that band who's, you know, getting together, go buy the cassette bag, buy their seven inch, you know, support it, mm -hmm. be a part of your culture. Yeah. You know, if you, uh, I guess no one's doing print zines anymore, but if you want to do a website, but just um, creating your own culture rather than have it spoon fed to you. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That is fantastic, and I think it's a great way to end this thing. Uh, let me just uh, I'll shut this off.